As we get started today, I just want to kind of get our brains working a little bit with a couple of statements as we get going to kind of say some things that we're going to come back to later on. But before we get there, I want to kind of set the stage a little bit. And so just, get, just to get us thinking here, it's possible to stay out of trouble and do nothing for someone who's having trouble. It's possible to be financially responsible and selfish. It's possible to be self-controlled and judgmental. It's possible to be careful personally and also uncaring. To be blameless and unsympathetic. It's, it's possible to, to keep your hands clean without offering anyone else a hand. Or in summary, it's possible to, to be good without doing any good. So let me say it this way. It's possible to, to be a good person without, without doing good for another person. Well, at least that's what the religious people of Jesus' day thought. The religion that he walked into 2,000 years ago was much like the religion we have today, where, like, like now, even then, people believed, the religious people believed oftentimes that because they kept a set of rules, they followed a set of laws, they checked the right boxes, they were good people, that they didn't have to be concerned with the others around them. They could look down on them, ignore them, compare themselves to them, uh, neglect them, even alienate themselves from them. Because after all, that's not my problem. I'm a good person. So that was the thinking then and perhaps sometimes now as we kind of get our eyes off of the point that God was making and into the pitfalls of our religions. And that was the way it was in Jesus' day when he arrived. That was the thinking in so many of the lives of the Pharisees and others. And yet Jesus just kind of turned all that upside down, didn't he? He always did that. He, just, he was the one who came to just flip the script. And, and when he came, he, he always said things. Like, for example, if you've ever read the famous, we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, probably a sermon that Jesus preached everywhere he went over and over and over and over again, communicated to people who'd only ever meet him or hear him once. But it's recorded for us once in Scripture. And in that sermon is an example of how he was always challenging the thinking. He would say, you've heard it said in your law, but I say unto you this. You have heard this taught to you in your synagogues, but I say unto you this. You have heard in your oral traditions to do this, but I say unto you this. Jesus was always challenging the thinking. And that didn't land well with everybody. But he was challenging this idea of what it meant to be good if we're not doing any good. Well, today we're finishing our sermon series. If you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been talking about structural integrity. And I'm not going to take the time to review that. We've reviewed that idea every week for the past several weeks. If you've missed that, I really recommend you can go to our, face, our, our website, our lighthousecedarlake.com. There's a message section there. You can find the podcast version on audio or the video version on YouTube there at our website. And you can watch or listen to it at your convenience. But we will not review it again today. 
but we've been talking about integrity. And we've reminded us all along that, that loosely defined, integrity is doing the right and noble thing simply because it is the, the right and noble thing. And we gave you a working definition on screen that I'll remind you again, that integrity is doing what you ought to, even if it costs you. And we've made that point for the last few weeks. We've also given you a memory verse that I've hoped you've memorized, or you will still memorize, from Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 3, where it says the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And what we hope is that you'll remember those words, you remember being upright. You'll remember the importance of asking yourself, what is it that guides me? We want to be guided by integrity. Well, we've also illustrated this truth through some Bible stories and examples that we've studied together about how to do integrity and how to not do it. We saw the story of Esau and how he failed to keep his integrity, right, Esau? And then we talked for a couple weeks about Daniel and how Daniel was a man of integrity. Well, today, to wrap this up, I want to look at another person in the Scriptures, the most important one. Let's talk about Jesus. So the story picks up, uh, and, and it's going to be in Matthew tw uh, 22, but we're going to start a few verses earlier. In Matthew 21, verse 45, it tells us that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. Now, I want to unpack that verse for a moment so that you'll understand what's happening. When Jesus came, he kind of just, again, he shook up how things were done including in the, amongst the religious. And he, he pointed people back away from that and pointed them to God. But as Jesus did that, um, th th it was always hard because he was helping the regular people. He was doing miracles and doing good for others. And, and sometimes he was challenging the system and those who kind of ran the system didn't care for him to be challenging it, you know. So it was a, it was a real rub there and they hated him. But on top of all of that, they could not ignore him, and they began to listen to his sermons and his parables, or in other words, his stories he would tell, stories that would illustrate the kingdom of God. And they realized that in his parables, he made God accessible to the regular people, but he also oftentimes made them look bad. And they didn't like that, because who would? And so, as they realized that he was doing that, verse 46 tells us that they looked for a way to arrest him, Ultimately, because they wanted to execute him, they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So in other words, if you're already the bad guy in the stories and now you're going to arrest the man that everyone likes because he's healing and feeding and helping and teaching, well, you're really going to get in trouble and it's going to be a riot. So they did not want to get in the way of that. So they put a plan together that the best thing that they could possibly do was to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. And they got together and thought, if we can ambush him with some hard questions and get him to answer something poorly, or perhaps get him to misspeak, then we can make him look foolish. And if we can make him look bad to the people, he'll lose their support. This was before everyone had social media and YouTube videos. Nowadays, it would, be, it would be somebody who tweeted something at a point in their life that would later haunt them because people would, would save it and, and, and make them look bad because it was something they said when they were young and foolish or perhaps something they said that was caught on video that they shouldn't have said, but it was a bad moment and they were in a bad spot and they, they misspoke. 
and, and you have proof that they did it, and you could, you could cancel them, because we love, we love cancel culture. And when I say we love cancel culture, I don't just mean, yeah, the other people. I mean, everyone does. Everyone wants to cancel the other side of, of you know, people they don't like and defend that that should not be done to the people we're for, but it should definitely be done for the people we, not, we don't support, you know? You know, suspend, fire, I don't care. Get, quiet them and leave us alone, right? That's how we want to play that game. And so that culture was always around, and the Pharisees at this point wanted to shut Jesus down and shut him up. They wanted to basically cancel him. Because after all, if they could just do that, then, well, then he wouldn't be a pain in their side anymore. And after all, that's all that matters to most of us is our side. So they wanted to shut him down. But they realized that it would be hard to get Jesus to misspeak. And so they had to be clever. So they put their best minds together. And they finally decided to break into three different groups. And these three different groups would work at a different approach to get an aha moment against Jesus. And these were not even people who necessarily agreed with each other. There, there was, just like today, there was so much division in the religious community about who understood God better and who had it more right. And they had the same stuff that we have today, the Pharisees from the Sadducees, the school of Hillel from the school of Shammai, all the kind of divisions you could possibly expect were still there. But, th- but at this point, they came together because, after all, the enemy of my enemies is my friend, right? So they were going to come together and try to get Jesus, And as they put their plans together, they kind of divided it into three groups. One at a time, they were going to approach him and get him to mess up and get him canceled. So, we pick up that story in Matthew 22. And beginning with verse 16, they came to him and they said, Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity. Now, I'm just going to stop right here and marvel. They're going to come to him and they're trying to trip him up. And yet, even in coming to him, they acknowledge something about him that we just don't want to rush past. These are his enemies speaking. They don't even like him because of whatever. But they're like, we admit, teacher, we admit, we know, we know that you are a man of integrity. That's what we've been talking about this whole series, integrity. And his enemies, the ones who wanted to find fault with him, just like with Daniel last week, well, they knew he was a man of integrity. Isn't that interesting? This is what his enemies said. Wouldn't you love it if your enemies, that was their take on you? Some of us, we, some of us wouldn't want our friends to talk about us in public. We're like, no, no, no. You just keep that to ourselves right there, you know? But his enemies, the ones who wanted to tear him down, were like, look, we know something. We know something about you. We might want to be take you down, but we're not going to come in here foolishly. We're going to acknowledge something that even we admit. You are a man of integrity. They went on. They said then that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's a very interesting statement. Because of your integrity, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's a fascinating statement because it reminds us, as we look at it, it reminds us that the way of God is the way of integrity. Or if I can say it this way to us, the will of God is the way of integrity. And I want to make that statement because I want you to allow me to take an intentional detour for a minute here. We call them rabbit trails growing up in church. I want to take a little bit of a detour. I don't know if that makes as much sense, rabbit trails, right? That's a, 
is a good old hunting term for how we get off course, but uh, it may be a modern culture. Detour, I'm gonna take a detour, okay? But, but as I talk about the will of God as the way of integrity, it reminds me that many of us struggle sometimes, and maybe you come to a pastor or a parent or a spiritual influencer in your small group or whatever, and we like to ask the question, uh, what is the will of God for my life? All of us, we get concerned sometimes, what's God's will for my life? And what we mean by that is, what is God's specific will for my life? We want to know, you know, is God's will, you know, who, who should I marry? What should I do for my career for, if you're young, you know? Uh, what should I do for a living? Uh, you know, where should I live? What should I, you know, how should I get involved in service and community? What should I do to make the world a better place? What is God's will for my life? And we are referring to the specific will of God when we say that. But what I want to suggest today is that while you're wondering how to discover God's specifics for your life, his specific will will always be uncovered and discovered for you while you're practicing his general will for your life. You see, there's some specifics for you because we're not all the same. We have different gifts and settings and callings. But there are also some general things that apply to everybody that we're not exempted from. To be obviously silly, you know, obvious here, um, when the Bible says don't kill, you're not like, well, that's not for me. That's for other people. I can kill. You know, we know that there's just some things that are for everybody. How to live, how to be people of integrity, how to do right. There's just some general will of God for all of us. And then there's God's specific will for each of us. But if you want to discover God's specific will, my best advice would be this. Be busy doing God's general will. Do the things you know God wants us to do as you seek his face. Because it will be found as you walk in integrity, in the way of God that God will reveal his will to you specifically. And so that's the best advice. Yes, pray about it, get some input, but just do what you know God wants you to do. Why would God reveal to us more specific and secretly what he wants from us when we're not already doing what we know we're supposed to do? Start with what we already know while looking for what we don't know yet. Think about, you know, young, you know, some of you, like, like I'm thinking of Jacob and Anna, you're praying about what to do with your future, right? And what after this year of, of, of your job looks like one day. Best way to find God's specific will is in the meantime, just do his, do what you know to do, right? That's what we do. We do what we know to do while we wait for God to show us specifically what he's calling us to. That's where the will of God is uncovered. The will of God is the way of integrity. We can all walk in integrity as we seek God's face. Now, that was a little detour. I'm going to get back on the route. We stopped for donuts and coffee. It was delicious. We're jumping back on the highway here for a moment. Okay, let's go back to that last verse. Teacher, they said, we know, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you, you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they added this. This is so fascinating to me. They said, you aren't swayed by others. Isn't, isn't that interesting? You're not swayed by others. In other words, you don't have a, a conduct that is changed because somebody in your life is powerful or rich and can give you promotion or position or money or because you're afraid of them and they can hurt you and you're scared. You're not letting your appetite steer you towards opportunity, nor are you letting your fears of the lions and the lions in, you know what I'm saying? You're not, you're, not, you're not falling for the bowl of stew or the den of lions. You're not going for appetite or fear. You're not worried about people, what they can do for you or against you. People aren't affecting how you live. Nobody around you changes who you are. You are not swayed by others, they add, because you pay no attention to who they are. 
Now, this was, this is interesting for these people to admit to Jesus because they were very good at being swayed and worried about the opinion of others. In fact, one of the things that Jesus was always teaching against was not to be like the religious people who would pray to be noticed by others or do good for the poor only if others would notice them and make them look good. They're always thinking about the opinion of man. And they said to Jesus, you just do what's right. You're a man of integrity, and it's never influenced by anybody else who's watching or, or what they can do or for you or against you. You just do the right thing. And, and he did. And he didn't just follow some laws. He, he was doing so much for others. He, he went around and he fed the hungry and healed the sick and opened blind eyes and cast out devils and, and, and taught the multitudes and just went about doing good. And, and the thing that Jesus' enemies are, are recognizing here is that Jesus wasn't good for goodness sake, right? Like, he wasn't just good for goodness sake. He wasn't coming down saying, look at me, aren't I good? Look at me, I'm in like a museum. Follow how good I, aren't I good? He's so good. No, he wasn't good for goodness sake. He was, he was good for something bigger that we're discussing today. But we're going to unpack that more in just a minute. So anyhow, this is time for their first gotcha question, right? So here's what they say. This is the first question they asked. They said, teacher, uh, tell us then, what is your opinion? This is their aha moment. They're going to make Jesus look bad. What's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, right there, that was an ambush because part of the crowd would have been mad at him no matter what he said. He would have lost, he would have lost somebody in the crowd. This is one of those things where it's kind of like Christians today where you can have an opinion about Jesus, but then if you wade into these other hot areas, you're going to lose half your audience about Jesus because they're going to write you off over these other issues. And so they're like, what? let's talk about this divisive issue in our, our culture. What's your take on this, Jesus? And today we're not going to talk about Jesus' answer here, partly because I want to address this idea and this, this broader thinking about how we deal with issues in culture in a few weeks or so at church here. So we're going to save that for another time. What I want you to notice, though, is that the, they were trying to get him stuck in a, in a rock in a hard place. And Jesus answered them amazingly, as we'll study another week, a different time. He answered them amazingly. So they left. So now the second group came. The second group came to, to talk to Jesus now. And this was not the Pharisees. This was the Sadducees. Now, again, there were divisions amongst the religious community at that time who lost sight of God, but in the name of God, fought with each other and lorded over others in the name of God. This group, the Sadducees, was different from the Pharisees because the Sadducees, well, they just didn't believe there was a resurrection, and the Pharisees did. The Sadducees figured once you're dead, you're dead. So they had a debate. The Sadducees thought there is no resurrection, which some people said is why they were sad, you see. So anyhow, they were just, they didn't believe in it. But anyhow, this, this group comes to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question about the resurrection. And this is easy for them because they already criticized and mocked it. So they asked him a question that they thought would trip him up. And it's just a ridiculous question, a ridiculous scenario, and we won't get into it today either. But Jesus answers them so well that the crowd is basically like applauding. It's like, whoa, he answered that so well. He put them in their place. It was perfect. So now it's the third group's chance to come and try to trip him up. Matthew 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, well, the Pharisees, they got together, and... One of them, 
an expert in the law, referring to the law of Moses, the law of God, the Hebrew scriptures, an expert in the law, he tested Jesus with this question. He says, teacher, which is the, the greatest commandment in the law? And as Jesus answers him, it was, it was an obvious answer. It was, it was really an easy question. It was kind of a layup because he's setting him up for a follow-up question that's gonna be his gotcha moment. So he's giving him an easy answer first. What's the greatest commandment in the law? And as Jesus answered him, everyone in that audience could have also answered the question along with Jesus because they all knew it. Jesus said to them, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment to which they all would be nodding their heads. But before the man could speak up with part two of his, uh, of his approach, Jesus continues and says, and the second is like it, to which the guy's like, time out. Second, I, I asked for one. You're messing up my plan here. I, I gotta, I gotta, I'm on a track here, and you're just, what, what means second? Jesus only gives a second command, like it. And when Jesus said second, he did not mean second in importance, he meant second in sequence, but equal in importance. The second is like it. It's equal to it. They are the same. And here's what he said. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's not what they want to hear. Because, you know, the other part, loving God, that's kind of general. And I've said this so many times through the years, and I will say it so many times again, so you'll have to... Put up with me as long as you do, I guess. But um, they, they had a very vertical religion. It's me and God. I'm good with God. Love, I love God. You don't know. You can't judge me. You're not God. You can't judge. I'm, me and God are good. And, and, but they didn't have a very good horizontal relationship with people. And they oftentimes justified their bad horizontal treatment of each other because they're good with God. And so they have this question about the great commandment. They knew it was this love the Lord your God. Then Jesus says, the way that looks practically, the, the equal part of it, is love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's just not what they were looking for. Because that kind of messes everything up, you know. Because it's easier to love this God that I cannot see than to love my brother who I can see who drives me crazy. You know, that's a whole different ballgame. So this vertical morality is challenged by Jesus calling them to horizontal faith. You see... They understood something that we do today too when we get lost in religion between us and God. That it is easier to, to be good than available. It's easier to be good and to say, look at how good I am, I check some boxes, than it is to love our neighbor as ourself, to help somebody, to do some good, to be available. It's easier to be good than available, isn't it? That's why I said at the beginning of our time together today that it is possible to, to be good without doing any good. At least that's what people have often practiced in the name of God and religion. Is it possible to be good? You know, I grew up in church culture, so when I was a teenager, my dad became a pastor, so I was a preacher's kid, which can be a very bad or good thing. And um, I was not always, I didn't always fit in the box super well. You know, I was, I was not... The most wild, I know some wild preacher's kids stories. Watch out for uh, preacher's kids. But, but, but I was, they, all, they could be saints or sinners, nowhere in between, right? But I was, I was a pretty good kid, but I, wasn't, I didn't always fit into the box, especially because we were in a fundamentalist background with really strict box 
really strict box. And so I didn't always fit into that box very well at all. And so there was times in my, in my journey where, I mean, I just kind of rubbed against it. And, and, you know, then there was those kids. There was always the kids in the youth group who they just, they checked all the boxes just right. They are always just the best kids in the youth group, you know. There's, then there's the rebel rousers. But some of the kids in the church, there was always those good kids. Like, they never did any, they, they, they never caused anyone drama or stress. You know, they were never, you know, smooching with their girlfriend behind the church building. I mean, you know, I'm not, you know they were never being bad. They were never, you know, going off to, you know, a church youth conference and skipping the conference to go sneak off to the movie theater and watch movies instead. I'm not saying who did that. And confirming or denying whether he looks anything like me. I'm just saying um, people may have done that before. I don't know. But, the, and of course, the thing was, you know, because you're the preacher's kid, you're supposed to be perfect. By the way, as a preacher's son and as a married to a preacher's daughter, I just want to say, wherever you live in your future of your life, let's not hold someone's last name against them. Humans are humans. They've got to find their own way. And they all need, everyone needs the same opportunities to, to have that journey without being beaten down by their last name. It's not fair to anybody on that trip, right? But that's a, that's a different subject. I'll save that for a different day too. Anyhow, so I wasn't always squeaky clean, right? And I, but, but there was always those kids that I would hear people say, why can't you be more like so-and-so? Why can't you be more like so-and-so? Don't you all love the person that, 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 that that's your favorite person in the world? Why can't you be more like so-and-so? Because they kept, they, they loved to stay inside the box. And we had a pretty tight box. They, they loved to stay inside the box, they, it was easy for them with their personality to just kind of check all the little, tell me what I'm allowed to do and not allowed to do. And I'll just check them all and I'm, I'm good. Why can't you be more like so-and-so? And you know, I, that used to be a pressure I, I felt. But one day it hit me because some of the people that were in that, and I, I was impressed with them. I'm like, man, you must not have any kind of a, you must not like girls or I don't know what your problem is. But, you know, I, I was impressed with these people and they're amazing willpower to always be good. And then one day, we had a chance to do some outreach, to do some evangelism and some outreach and some serving the community to help others. And I was like, hey, are you going to help others? And a, a couple of these good kids, I'm thinking of one in particular, would be like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, well, well, come on, man, let's, let's do something for somebody else. No, no, I don't want to do that. They were content with just sitting back and never making waves. And everyone loved it. All the people who, all the church people who liked their systems and their structures liked them because they never caused them any trouble. They never pushed against the boundaries. So they loved them, but they never wanted to do anything for anybody else. And it hit me one day, what's the point? You're just like an antique on a shelf. And you're going to just like fall. You, you, you can play within these boundaries, but you don't do anything. And it just, I remember thinking, what's the point? It's possible to, to be good without doing any good. Now, don't misread what I'm saying. It's also possible, you know, I mean, the other not, not, way is not better. It's, this is not an either or, okay? Let me just make that clear. It's not an either or. Like I was in Bible college and we knew some kids who started to get into some bad trouble and they were so involved in outreach that they used to say, hey, don't judge what I'm doing because, you know, I'm, look at all the good I'm doing in my community outreach. And I thought to myself, you're going to destroy your reputation, your name, and you're going to get into trouble and you're going to lose your chance to do good outreach because your behavior is so bad. So this is not an either or that I'm talking about today. The reason I'm making this point today is because of this. We've spent the last four weeks talking about integrity, which basically, in some ways, might feel like a sermon that's been built around being good. 
And I know that when we do that, for some of us, that's like, ooh, that's a challenge to my character. But there are others of us in the church world, we love the last four weeks. We love those kind of sermons because we're like, yes, that's right. Get all those people and preach to them for not checking all the boxes like I do and not fitting the little perfect structure of religious behavior. And so we've loved the series. And we're like, yes, I'm a good person. I love integrity. Preach it, preacher. And so I want to say after four weeks of saying that, don't mistake the point that we're not calling us to be good by some code and not do any good. That's not the point. It's not an either or. It should be both. In fact, the one should naturally spill into the other because, here's why. We've been talking about how integrity is doing what you ought to even if it costs you. But here's the thing. Ought to isn't just about you. What you ought to do, what I ought to do, is more than just about me. When you listen to what Jesus taught, it wasn't just about us. Ought to isn't just about you. It's about the folks around you. So that's part of the ought to. So if my ought to is, I'm just kind of, you know, I got my little list. I'm keeping the, you know, I, I'm a good one. Preacher, I don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't date the girls that do. Woohoo, look at me. Uh, like some, you know, th 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 there I am. That, that's not what we're talking about. Ought to isn't just about you. It's about, do, about the folks around you. So after Jesus died and rose again, the apostle Paul became a great missionary once he became a believer. He began to travel and preach the gospel everywhere. Then he began to write letters back to the churches that he planted. And in one of his letters in Galatians chapter 5, he sums it up this way. Paul says, serve one another in love. That's action. That's doing something. Serve one another in love. And then he adds this. For the entire law, this is powerful, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm, I'm sure that somebody would have said, actually, excuse me, Paul, um, you messed that up because the one command should be to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and that's kind of part two of the same command, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul was like, no, Jesus, before he died in the upper room, told his disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment it's to love each other the way I love you. So he's saying, this is, this is the command. Because really, if, if we're not careful, we get so focused on loving God that we make our morality a vertical issue. And, and God was saying, you're missing the point because the way you do that is you love each other. You love each other the way that I've loved you. You love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul said, I was going to cut to the chase. The entire law right here, love your neighbor as yourself. And notice that that's the entire law. They're like, well, the entire law, I keep a lot of the rules. He says, no, all of that law, the entirety of it, is summed up in one simple idea, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's got to be available for that. Can I just be good without doing any good? So Jesus had this encounter one more, one more story from the Bible to tell uh, before we can make a few more statements and go home. Jesus has had this encounter with um, a young man, a rich young man. Sometimes we call him the rich young ruler. You may know that story. I don't know if he was a ruler, but the Bible says he was rich and he was young. This rich young man comes to Jesus, and he basically, he, he asks Jesus, you know, teacher, good you know, master, what good things must I do to earn favor with God? Or some translations might say to earn eternal life. 
But the reason why it's important to understand the nuance of the Greek there also is because they saw eternal life in a different context than sometimes we do. We think of eternal life as heaven and hell, afterlife stuff. And they were looking at the broader God's kingdom here and us. It was, the, it was a whole being in favor with God for, for now and later. It was a whole, I want to be in God's favor. What must I do to find God's favor? To earn God's favor? Well, Jesus, you know, basically says, you know, first of all, who do you think I am? Because I'm the Savior. But they have this whole conversation. And then to answer the guy's question, Jesus rattles off a list of commandments to him. Basically, he says, you know, do the, what are the big commandments? List some of the top 10. And the kid's nodding his head. And he answers Jesus in, in Luke 20. Uh, what's our, where are we at here? Am I, am I missing a slide or are we sitting next here? Luke 18, 21, there we are. He's all of these I've kept since I was a boy. So this young man says, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Notice what he's saying here. How do I earn God's favor? Well, keep the commandments. Good. Because I have ke- I've kept all of them. I have checked the boxes. I have been good. I have been, I've kept them all. Jesus has compassion on him. And he says to him in the next verse, he says, one, you still lack one thing. You still lack one thing. He's like, okay, what's that last box I need to check? Because again, he was rich. He, he was in anyone's eyes successful. He was a good kid, didn't you know, make any waves, grew up. No one had any embarrassing stuff on him, you know. And he was successful financially. He was wealthy. He, had, he was the cream of the crop. Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Well, what's that? Jesus adds this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Whenever you read that verse, I think it's sometimes good to remind us that's a little shocking. Like, that's what you have to do to follow Jesus is sell everything you have and give to the poor? I want to remind you that that's not something that Jesus said to everybody. He called people to follow him in different ways depending on their context. An example would be Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the siblings, who were very wealthy people and never were asked to do this, what he's asked to do. They, were, they did support Jesus financially throughout his ministry, we, can, we, we see in history. But we don't... Uh, he, did, they didn't ask, he didn't ask them to do this. But this young man, he asked him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Why? Because to this young man, he was good. He's kept all the laws. Everyone would say, what a good, he's always been so good and he was so rich. He was just the, so impressed others. And if he was to give it all away, sell it all. In fact, the next verse, Jesus explains what he was getting at. He says, then come follow me. That was the point. For some people to follow Jesus, it was a matter of saying, I got nothing anyhow, here I come. But for this guy, he says, sell it all, come follow me. Well, for this guy to do that, in this particular case, all those people who thought he was great would have been like, are you crazy? And he would have been like, yeah, I'd have to be crazy. I've, I've kind of built this little world for myself, and I'm such a, that, what are you asking of me? No. He wouldn't. And think about what Jesus invited him into. We never, we never think about this, I don't think. Jesus invited this guy to be one of his, his first century disciples. He was given an invitation to come. I wonder, I've always wondered if later on after Jesus died and rose again and then the gospel spread and the churches began, if this young guy later on regretted the fact that he had a chance at one time to be one of the disciples of Jesus, but he could not let go. I don't know. We'll never know. Not we, don't, we won't know down here. But he was too busy being good. 
And Jesus called him to something more. Here's the thing. It's easy for all of us. It's easy for all of us to, to conflate this idea because for many people, especially religious people, we can be all about the law of God. But I want to make something very plain that if I haven't already, and we've not done it many other Sundays before this one, and we'll do it many more Sundays after this in the future, that the law of God cannot be divorced or separated from the love of God. That, that is the very center command of the law of God. And I cannot sit there and say, I'm good because I've kept the laws better than other people, but I've not shown any love or done anything for anybody. There's a, our churches are full of such people. And we're really not that good at keeping the law. We're usually good at picking and choosing which laws we keep and which ones are big deals, which ones are not big deals. And looking down at the people who, keep the law, who break the laws that we think are big deals because we don't struggle with those ones. But, but thinking good of ourselves because, it, no, you know, Paul Buddy's nerfect or nobody's perfect or however that goes. I, I try to keep the law, so I keep the important, I'm, I'm better than most. So we make it about the law sometimes. But the law of God cannot be separated from the love of God. And aren't we glad? Aren't we glad? that Jesus modeled that for us? That God didn't come down and say, let me model for you how awesome looks. Y'all couldn't do this. Aren't I perfect? Aren't I good for goodness sake? This is why you all are gonna go to hell. Because you can't be as awesome and perfect as me. Want you to see it so you feel condemned. I'm out of here. No, he comes down and says, look, I'm here to serve, give, die, bleed. It's gritty, it's dirty, it's messy. Because I love you. And that's what love does. And you can't divorce the law of God from the love of God. It's possible, I've said. It's possible to be good without doing any good. But then, well, then we're good for nothing, aren't we? We're good for nothing. And I don't know about you, but I just think if we're going to follow Jesus, we ought to follow Jesus He's calling us to be good for something. So we've been giving you the definition of integrity the past many weeks that I want to point out something within that definition to you. Integrity is doing what you ought to even if it costs you. We're always emphasizing that phrase, ought to. Doing what you ought to. But don't miss the first word. Integrity is doing Integrity is not just not doing what you should not do, maybe it's going to cost you. It's doing what you ought to. It's an action. It's a verb. It's like love. Doing what you ought to, even if it costs you. So that's our definition. We've given that to you for the last few weeks. And if you've taken notes or written that down or put it to memory, I want to add one more statement to it that if you take notes or pictures on your phone or whatever, Add this statement to that definition and remember it after today, if you would, please. And that is this. Integrity is more than being good or looking good. It's doing good. It's the law of God and it's the love of God. It's Jesus coming to earth not to show us what awesome and good and perfect looks like, but showing us what serving and sacrificing and dying and helping looks, it does in practice. And that anything less than doing in our religion is simply just a dead religion. And you could have a dead religion in the name of God, you have a dead religion in the name of Jesus, but you're not following the teachings of Jesus if our religion is dead and is about being or looking good. 
compared to others. It's about doing good. It's about being like our Savior. When Jesus died and rose again, um, he went back to heaven. And the, the early church, there was a statement made to kind of describe Jesus to people who did not know him. And the statement was this, Jesus of Nazareth, who went about doing good, healing all that were sick, right, and all those other things because God was with him. Who went about doing good. Listen, that is what integrity calls us to. And anything less than that is not really integrity, is it? It's not the integrity that Jesus modeled. And I hope that for all of us today, we can leave here and say, by God's grace, by God's grace, I will be a person of integrity and I will do what I ought to, even if it costs me. It sure did Jesus, and I'm sure glad.